Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality and we're glad you're joining us. And today we have Andrea Martinez. Andrea, thanks for joining us at Spirituality Adventures. Thank you. Man, I feel like I've known you for quite a long while. So it's fun to have you here and excited to hear your story. Thanks for coming. I just love being with you. (laughs) So Andrea is an immigration lawyer and we're going to be talking about immigration today. And some of you might be thinking, well, what does immigration have to do with spirituality? I hope by the end of this conversation that we have that you might have a little bit better idea of this. But uh, I met Andrea when you were probably, what, 15, maybe in high school, junior high or high school? I think I was 14 or 15. And you, you're, a, you're a longtime Kansas City gal, grew up in Kansas City, graduated from Platte County, Platte County mm-hmm. High School. And give people kind of, you know, your journey from, from high school to college to, you know, how you started getting, thinking about becoming a lawyer. Well, you met me in one of the lowest times of my life, and I always uh, think back with just so much gratitude to you and the love that you showed me when I was at a really dark time. I ended up getting arrested for a minor in possession of drugs and alcohol when I was in high school my freshman year, and I um, really had a transformational moment where I um, turned my life over to God and just said, God, I've clearly made a mess of my life, but I will serve you and do uh, if you if you can use me, I think my prayer was, if you can use me, then I'm yours. And that was about it. I didn't know what else to say. I knew that I was a mess and I needed help. And then I found you and I found uh, the church and I found a group of loving people through Young Life that helped me. Um, and then I went to a Christian college, John Brown University. And while I was at that university, a group of human rights lawyers came to speak at the chapel service at John Brown. And it was IJM, International Justice Mission. And they talked about injustice in the world, and they talked about slavery and human trafficking and things that I had no idea existed. I had traveled. My parents are travel agents, so I grew up traveling, and I knew about poverty, and it bothered me, but I didn't know about injustice. And when I heard about sex trafficking in particular, I went home to my dorm room that night, and I wept. I bawled. I could hear the screaming of little girls in my head. And it was at that moment, I was studying to be a missionary, in fact, at school, and I decided I was going to go be a lawyer. And I thought, I'm going to do what international justice does, justice mission does, and I'm going to go be a lawyer. So I studied for the LSAT, 
and I uh, got accepted to law school. I went to law school. I started at Regent University, which is a Christian law school in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And then halfway through, I transferred to American University, which is in Washington, D.C. They have one of the best human rights clinical programs in the country. And I really knew I wanted to be a human rights lawyer because I wanted to do what International Justice Mission did. After law school, after I graduated from American, I went to Guatemala and I actually worked with International Justice Mission and I was prosecuting child sex offenders for a year as a volunteer legal fellow with IJM. Um, I was then offered a what's prestigious in the law world, a federal clerkship back in Washington, D.C. at a court, and I took it, took that one-year position. And during that time, I married my immigrant husband from Honduras, Jorge, and I did his immigration paperwork. Oh. And I realized, and I screwed it up. <laughs> I, screwed up I screwed up his paperwork, and I had taken three immigration law classes in law school. So I thought I knew what I was doing, and it was so complicated that I didn't know what I was doing after all. And I ended up delaying his whole green card process, and he was so mad at me. So I realized, this is complicated, and I like it. And then I, then people, I'm, I speak Spanish, people started asking me immigration law questions. They, they figured, because I was a lawyer, I was an immigration lawyer because I spoke Spanish, and I was married to an immigrant. And then I thought, this fits. Immigrants' rights are human rights. Immigrants are humans. I can do this. This is going to be my, and I really felt God calling me. And then I started to really read scripture and I started to understand God's heart and God's passion for the foreigner and the stranger. And then this verse in Matthew 25 really stood out to me where Jesus said, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. And that stranger word in the Hebrew is the word ger, which means the foreigner or the refugee or the immigrant. And I was a foreigner. You welcomed me in. And so now I'm an immigration lawyer, and I really feel called to do what I do because I get the opportunity to welcome the foreigner every day through the work that I do in a really practical way, helping them get green cards or U.S. citizenship or get work card or protection from, uh, from persecution in their home countries. And I do represent a lot of immigrant victims of human trafficking and crime. So I feel like the work I do, I'm still a human rights lawyer. They just call me an immigration lawyer and uh, immigrants' rights are my passion and I really believe my calling. That's amazing. So I'm, I, you know, some of the people that are going to be listening probably are people who might have read the Bible, believe the Bible. Um, some may not really be that familiar with the Bible, but you pointed out several things that I want to kind of um, highlight about because this, you know, is, is our human rights issues, justice issues, immigration issues, and how those tie into human rights. Uh, are, is that a spiritual thing? And you pointed out in scripture about this word for this Hebrew word ger, which is translated stranger or foreigner. And rightly so, you point out this could be an immigrant or it could be a refugee or it could be uh, just somebody who is um, on, on foreign soil and not necessarily trying to move in, but is vulnerable for various reasons because they're on for, foreign soil. And it's interesting in the in the Torah, okay, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible in the Torah, in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there is there are commands to the Jewish people to treat the foreigner uh, with special grace, compassion, and attention, because you used to be one too, right? You were you were in Egypt, 
Mm-hmm. And you were a foreigner. You were an immigrant. You were sort of a refugee of sorts when you were in Egypt. So now when you have those folks among you, you likewise need to treat them with humanity and compassion. So, so it's so fascinating because, you know, the, and, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to have you give us a one one on immigration. Like, okay. like how, how, how do people in America, how do people listening to this podcast need to understand immigration? And the first foundation for me is this one that you've pointed out is that it's actually a mandate both in the Hebrew Bible and then Jesus himself picks up on that word, the least of these, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, and, you know, the naked and the prisoner and those kind of things. The most vulnerable, mm-hmm. the marginalized, those on the fringes are people that we need to be mindful of. And that's a part of social justice. So like in the Hebrew Bible, mishpat is the social justice word. And, you know, it's like I, Amos saying, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like ever. That's social justice. That's the work. That's the kind of work that you do. So what you do is a God calling thing. Explain to people a little bit more about IJM. Cause I think that's a fascinating ministry that captured your heart. That's mm-hmm. really what sparked your heart that's was right. IJM. And basically what they try to do is get, am I, I'm understanding it right. Lawyers to do go basically go do a, a year or two of mission work as a lawyer. Is that right? So IJM has uh, field offices all over the world. Their headquarters are outside of Washington, D.C., and they use a lot of U.S. government funding. They get a lot of grants from like the Gates Foundation, et cetera. And then they go and they use those funds to empower local lawyers and local law enforcement. So like when I went to Guatemala, there were um, Guatemalan lawyers that were on the ground doing the work. And then I came to support those lawyers. Um, so for example, in Guatemala, the justice system allows for private prosecutors to come in and help the public prosecutors. It's something we don't have here in the United States. You would never just like roll up as a private lawyer and tell the prosecutors, I'm helping you out with this trial. But there it was allowed. So IJM actually has not only lawyers, but law enforcement. They have what they call investigators, law enforcement. And then they also have aftercare social workers, people who can help the victims after they've been rescued from um, the sex trafficking or whatever it is. In Guatemala specifically, it was the investigators that would go out, find the aggressor, detain the aggressor, um, and then the lawyers would present the entire case to the judge while the public prosecutor, we would be sitting right next to them at this courtroom. The public prosecutor would have this massive file, have hardly opened it. Uh, we did the entire trial. And then 99% of the time, the IJM lawyers were the ones that got the conviction and sent this aggressor to jail. Mm. The whole, it, it basically, IJM creates its own justice system they make the justice systems work in countries where the laws are on the books. They're just simply not enforced uh, for many reasons, right? Corruption, also overwhelm of the of the public prosecutors and law enforcement agencies. But in many of these countries that they go to, whether it's India, where there's a lot of slavery or Thailand, a lot of sex trafficking in Guatemala, sadly, it's child sex abuse. So they pick the injustice that's most prevalent. Mm-hmm. in those countries, and then they find the law that's already on the books, and they go in and make sure that that law is enforced. Wow, that's amazing work, I think. Yes, I agree. It really is. 
So, so you're, so I, you still probably see yourself as a, as a missionary of sorts, wouldn't you think? You know, I kind of do. I kind of <laughs> <sword>. do. <laughs> and, and it's been interesting as I've, as I've grown uh, over the years, I, I think at the beginning, I really felt like I was doing the missions work. And now getting to know the amazing people that I serve, I find myself more of an observer and in awe of the people I get to serve and their strength and their resilience and their courage. Um, I imagine Jesus and Joseph and Mary when God told him to flee, when Herod was killing the mm. little babies and, mm. and, he woke, and God woke up Joseph in the middle of the night and said, you take your family and you flee to Egypt. And I imagine little baby Jesus and Mary and they're mm -hmm. on the donkey going to Egypt. And, right. and then sometimes I get to serve clients and I look at them, I think, maybe this is like what Jesus looked like. Yeah. He, and, and I wonder, you know, if, if this was, and I just think to myself, I hope I'm treating these people the way that Jesus would have wanted to be treated mm. when he was going to Egypt. Yeah. So that's a part of the Christmas story that a lot of people don't even notice, right? It's like Jesus was an immigrant. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so when he said, when you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. It's like he, yeah. He was one of those. The way we treat the refugee yeah. and the immigrant is truly, yeah. Oh, my. We could go a we on could go and on. We could, this, on. We? <laughs> we could talk for hours. Yeah. So, so let's, so, so this, I love this. I, I love this about you. And I, I've been so proud of you and the work that you've done. Um, but, you know, in our, in our political climate today, mm. this this immigration issue has become so charged, right? With so many different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you and I have grown up in the Northland. So we're surrounded by people, people that we love, people that are probably listening right now, you know, <laughs> um, that is like, well, you know, why, like, if they're here illegally, just get rid of them. They shouldn't be here. You know, I mean, it's just, it's like for them, it's a cut and dry issue. If mm -hmm. you're if you're not here legally, you shouldn't be here, mm -hmm. and we need to build those walls. We need to keep them out, and the only people that should be coming in here as immigrants are the yeah. people that are doing it legally through the right processes and all these kind of things. But help us, give us a like. I, this is I know this is too hard of a question probably for this podcast, but like a one hundred and one on immigration and why it's so much more complicated than that. Well, I think one of the first things people don't know about immigration law in particular that they need to know is that there aren't as many legal ways as there need to be because the law is very outdated. Um, Reagan, uh, it was 88. The last major immigration reform was 1988. So I was seven years old and that's dating myself, I know. But um, you think about how many times we update our phones or we update our apps, or we update whatever on our technology, it's at least every few months, right? If not a year. We're talking about an immigration system that is decades old, where our economy has grown. Uh, the internet became a thing in this period of time. We've got so many economic arguments as to why we need an update in the immigration system as a whole and why there are so many people here that don't have documentation because the law doesn't allow it, because the law is just entirely too old and needs to be updated. 
But I really think that the issue stems, I could give you economic arguments and political arguments and, you know, social security, our social security system needs immigrant labor to come in and, and boost up. There's so many arguments. But what I really think it starts with is um, an understanding of where people come from and why they're here. So for me, that wasn't difficult to understand because I had traveled so much. But many of our friends uh, have not traveled as much. They haven't seen, they haven't gone to Honduras or El Salvador or Nicaragua or uh, Guatemala. They don't know the poverty and uh, the persecution that people are enduring in those countries that are called the push factor right? So there's a push factor and there's a pull factor. Pull is the demand from our economy for the labor. But the push factor is what's pushing people out of their countries. So there are really two options we have as U.S. citizens. We either update our immigration system and make it in line with our current economic needs and demands for our economy, or we support the justice systems of the countries that are um, pushing people out because they're not safe in those countries. So as I mentioned with Guatemala, uh, there are laws on the books that are not being enforced. So for women, femicide, the murder of women, is um, Guatemala is the third highest femicide um, rate in the world. <clears throat> women are murdered without, with total impunity. So there is not a justice system in these countries, and therefore people flee. Um, also, I would just—they they, know—they're willing to take their life, risk their own life because it's already in jeopardy anyway. So they there's a hope that it might be better, right? There's a so, some there's a Somali poet that says, uh, "You only leave your home when your home is the mouth of a shark." Mm -hmm. uh, until you really understand what people are living through mm -hmm. and in. There will never be there will never be the kind of compassion that you need to have for this issue or or really an understanding of how to fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, there has to be a, a, a global understanding of what's the push. What are the push factors and then what are the pull factors and then address both in an immigration reform bill. So there's a bill right now that's sitting in Congress that's being that is being debated and it's called the American Citizenship Act. <clears throat> I think it's great because it actually has components that have funding for uh, the Northern Triangle countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, and propping up their justice systems. So if we don't want people fleeing here, we have to support there. Mm -hmm. We have to get those justice systems working. It's You, you can't have it both ways. It's going to People are going to continue to come if they're not safe. And, and IJM would be one example of how th that... There's a some there are people trying to do those things. Not all, and that's a that's a nonprofit ministry. Are there actual um, are there actual government uh, ministries that try to do that as well? Well, gosh, or talking it, full circle about IJM. IJM actually was funded by the Gates Foundation um, to work. Uh, was an island in uh, the South Pacific. I can't remember, but they were uh, funded by the Gates Foundation to go in and reform the justice system of that island. And they actually went in, trained the local police. They had an anti-corruption task force and then a monitoring system, like an auditing system to make sure it was working. And the island has been transformed. So it is possible to transform justice systems if there is the right accountability in place. Mm -hmm. And that's what would have to happen in these Northern Triangle countries, which are the majority of my clients are Mexico, El Salvador, 
Honduras and Guatemala. Those three Central American countries are what they call the Northern Triangle. That's the majority of the refugees fleeing to the United States right now. And and particularly landing in Kansas City? All over the country. Okay. But but here You're too. representing all over. I'm I'm rep- but yeah. would that be true here just locally in Kansas City nope. as well? All over the country. It's okay. it's where when you see people coming, when you see on the news these, you know, groups mm-hmm. of these massive groups of people coming, they are coming to the US border primarily from those three northern triangle mm-hmm. countries. And they're coming in groups because there are strength in numbers and because it is so dangerous to travel through Mexico because of the cartels that they have to it's, it's a strength in numbers thing. They gotcha. have to come together or else they're going to be picked off by the cartels. Right. Hmm. Interesting. So um, because I think I think when people hear individual stories about immigrants and get the all the backstory, they have compassion. Hmm. But I think when they just think about it from this sort of bigger political worldview and think, well, if they're here illegally, they just need to be gone. We just yeah. need to kick them out. You know, why are they doing that? They need to do it legally. And so there's these, you know, but it, but that simple thing misses the the stories of these human beings that are at risk and that are taking even greater risks to try to find hope in a, in a, in a place to raise their families and a safe life and all that kind of stuff. That's right. Know? And maybe for me, um, because I had my own imperfect story, I was arrested. I was, um, I was a mess, right? So I, I broke the law. And when I see what I did, which was actually criminal, and I see what these people are doing, which is something that I would hope all human beings would do for their children if they were at risk. Right. I don't see what they did as worse than what I did. And so I, I have compassion for them also because I'm an imperfect human being that have, they're way better people than I am. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that, I I think we have to hold that forth. Like these are real human beings with real stories, with real tragedy. And without those real human being stories, we're, we're just looking at like pieces on a chessboard or something. Like it's so impersonal the way people talk about this sometimes. And it's just not that way. This is this is real life, real human beings, real tragedy, real pain, real suffering, and uh, and hope and and hopefully bring some real hope yeah. and all that. Um, so I want to I want to talk some about your uh, you are you are in a you are featured in a Netflix uh, series called Live, Living Undocumented, and uh, and so. It's it came out in 2019. If I understand it right, it features it's like six episodes and features eight different immigrant families. All all of them have at least one member of the family that's undocumented, right? That's correct. And yeah. they were willing to risk <laughs> being found by going like I was shocked, you know, that they would let themselves be filmed because this the, the idea for this started coming out like in 2017, 2018. It was published in 2019, I think. That's right. How did how did this how did you land on this this documentary? And you know, and then I want to get into the st- that particular story. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm so glad you asked because talking about stories, that's it's a great documentary to watch. Living undocumented, yeah, yeah. And Selena Gomez executive produced it, so they had all the money of celebrities behind it. So it's really well done, and I feel so honored to have been a small part of it. But we were, uh, my firm was featured in it because we were representing one of um, the first immigrant women who was pregnant and detained by ICE. So ICE was changing policies a lot in 2017, 2018. And in 2018, there was the family separations that everybody heard about. But something that got the news less, but still really egregious was pregnant women being detained. Um, And when we heard about this pregnant woman that was detained at the Platte County Jail, in the town where I graduated high school, uh, my associate attorney comes into me and she had just heard me speak at CauseCon that you had set me up with. And mm-hmm. she'd heard me speak to these young people and say, listen, um, we are called to take up the cause of the foreigner and the stranger. And Jesus says, I was in prison and you visited me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. And my associate attorney, who's now my managing partner, is not necessarily a person who's going to be going around quoting Bible verses, but she <laughs> she comes in my office and she says, Andrea, I can't sleep. I got this email about this pregnant woman who's detained at Platte County. And that verse that you were talking about from CauseCon just keeps resonating. Like, I can't sleep. And I keep hearing this thing saying, I was in prison and you visited me. We have to go visit this lady. And I was like... Well, I can't say no now. <laughs> we have to, we have, to, have to go see her now. <laughs> so we went up to the Platte County Jail <laughs> and live this thing. Gotta out. live this thing out. Uh-huh. It turns out. <laughs> so, so we go up to the Platte County Jail and we meet Kenya, who is one of the featured stories of the documentary. And she's got this big belly and this orange and white. Horse. And, she, and she's undocumented. <clears throat> she's undocumented, right. and not only is she undocumented. She was caught drive. She was the passenger in the car that Luis was driving. And if you watch the documentary, you'll meet Luis. Yeah, let's let's give the characters because okay. uh, we got Luis, Noah. How do you say her name? Kenya. Kenya, because it's K E N I A. I A, but it's yeah. pronounced like the Kenya. country. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then. Okay, yeah. So give give the characters and yes. paint this story out. All right. So there is Luis who is undocumented but has never been in the immigration process before. Luis is in his mid-20s, and he is the partner of Kenya. They're both from Honduras. They're not married, um, and they're driving together in a car with Kenya's biological son, Noah, who's three years old, in the backseat of a car. And they're taking a road trip from Texas, where they live, to Iowa to pick up Luis's son, Gael, from a different relationship and bring them back for a wedding. And they just happened to be driving through Missouri when the Missouri State Highway Patrol pulled Luis over. He he tells me that the the two three-year-olds in the back seat were saying that they peed their pants and he was trying to reach back to see which one peed and whether the seat was wet. And while he did that, he swerved over the yellow line a little bit. And because of that, he was pulled over. When he was pulled over, the Missouri State Highway Patrol asked not only Luis for his documents, but everyone in the car for theirs. Um, Unfortunately, Kenya had missed an immigration court hearing a few years prior. And so she had an order of removal in her absence. So the immigration judge, when she didn't show up to court, wrote an order saying, it was basically like an arrest warrant saying, if you find her, get her and we can deport her because she missed her hearing. And Noah, her son, was also part of that removal order. When the police officer figured out that Kenya was the most immigration-wise vulnerable, uh, he called ICE, and ICE came and got Kenya. And Kenya's not even driving the car. Kenya was asleep while this happened. 
and tell people what ICE is, just in case. Immigration I, and Customs <laughs> Enforcement, they're my favorite. They're the <laughs> Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They're a wing of the Department of Homeland Security, and it's the deportation wing. So ICE um, has multiple sub wings, but they are the deportation officials in the United States. And, and were they created by Homeland Security? Correct. So it's a, it, 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 there. There's always been deportation officials mm-hmm. in the United States, um, but after 9/11, it was formerly known as INS, Immigration and Naturalization mm-hmm. Service. People mm-hmm. still refer to it as INS right. now, but it's legacy INS, currently Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. So ICE is a is a deportation yeah. wing. And then explain to people what DACA is, just real quickly. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. DACA is the program for young people who were entered, uh, who were brought to the United States before they were 15 years old and uh, were basically raised in the United States, Mm -hmm. but weren't born here. So would Noah be? Noah was not because he he was brought to the United States. He was three years old. He was brought to to the United States when he was one, um, but he was not brought to the United States in time to qualify for the DACA program. Okay, gotcha. And he had a deportation order along with his mom. Um, but ICE, for some reason, decided to just take Kenya. So Kenya's taken out of this car with Luis and the boys bawling in the back, and she is taken by herself to a detention center. Um, when we got to the detention In St. Joe or? It was in Platte City. Platte City. Okay. The Platte County Jail. Okay. So I like walk up to the building. I like pass my high school as we're driving to see her. And I'm like, well, this is just strange mm. how it's the place where you, you just don't, you don't think about the place we uh, played all of our sporting events and pay our property taxes is the place where your client's going to be detained in the basement of the building. But there she was. We we walked into the jail and she um, she was there with this big belly and an orange and white horizontal jumpsuit and uh, just just cried and was just like, thank you so much for coming. Um, and we got to know her story. And this is your first meeting with her. First meeting with mm-hmm. her in this pro bono room of the jail yeah. where, where we're all locked in. We have to be buzzed in to get there and we're locked in with her and we're, and the other lawyer and I, Megan Galicia and I were um, getting her to know her story. And she had fled the United States. She had fled to the United States from Honduras because Noah's father is a police officer from Honduras and police officers in that country operate with total impunity. The other officers support whatever a police officer does, whatever criminal activity they may do. And in this case, he was committing domestic violence and she had no protection. She couldn't go to the police for protection because the abuser was the police. Wow. So she had no option but to take her son and flee uh, in order to save her life and her son's life. Okay. So she'd come here for that reason. But then when she had gotten uh, a court hearing notice, she was terrified because in her mind, it was a scary government entity like the one she had fled from. She had missed a hearing and now has this order of removal in her absence and was an imminent risk of deportation. Um, and that's where you'll see the story take off, where uh, in the documentary, we take over the case. And after appeals and weeks of her in jail and us trying to do everything we could to get her out of jail, we were unsuccessful. She was not allowed out. Uh, she was not allowed another chance to fight her case with lawyers that she trusted. Uh, we were told she was going to be deported and we needed to bring her son up to be deported with her. Um, so, yeah. So Noah stayed with Luis. Correct. Right from the, when, at the, yeah. So Kenya was taken. And Noah stayed with Luis. Noah stayed with Luis. Who's not his father. Not his biological father. Not his biological father, but the only father he knew and he loved. Right, right. So um, really, it actually became an issue when we were told to reunite the boy, Noah, with his mother. 
because Noah didn't want to leave. Noah didn't want to leave Luis. He loved Luis. Luis was protection for him, safety mm-hmm. for him. Um, and Luis had actually gone into the jail two different occasions and had told them, take me, let her go, take me, and had tried to talk ICE into taking him instead, and they wouldn't do it. Um, so uh, the moment arrived that was the highlight of the documentary. Right. Um, so this is at, this is in, happened in Platte City, is in, that right? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And right, right by my daughter's gymnastics Yeah, this studio. is in... I think episode two, mm-hmm. episode two, living undocumented. Um, Andrea was there with one of the other lawyers. They they take Luis and Noah, and this was supposed to be a meeting outside the detention center for the two of them to be able to hug, and then Noah's going to go with his mom, right? That's right, and be deported. That's right. So you, you, you take it from there, Andrea. <laughs> so we get there and, and, um, and then we get a call on our cell phone, on my cell phone and the, and the ICE officers that were supposed to be waiting in the parking lot weren't there. And we were like, where are they? We were just standing in the parking lot waiting for this van to pull up, which is what they told us they were going to be doing. And, um, I get a call on my cell phone and the ICE officer said, come inside. Uh, it's raining a little bit. Let's just do the reunification inside the building. Well, this is a deportation building. Luis has no interest in going in this building at this point. So we said, no, no, we'd really love to just stick with the original plan and have it be in the parking lot. And the bottom line was, no, it was going to happen inside the building. So the question was, Luis, you want to go in or do you want us to take the boy in? And as Luis is trying to figure out what to do, uh, the ICE agent uh, grabs Luis, who's holding Noah, and pushes him and forces him into the building. And the other lawyer and I are walking in as we think we're instructed to do. And the next thing we know, as Luis and Noah are entering the building, the ICE agents turn around and just throw us and throw me to the ground. And I ended up suffering a concussion and a broken foot and um, was bleeding everywhere. And uh, then we were locked out of the building and, lo- and and separated from our client. We didn't know what was happening. It was totally shocking. Uh, and we're still to this day, not sure what on earth happened in that moment, but uh, it's on video. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and you know, I have said this multiple times yeah. as, as sorry as I am that it happened to me. Um, if that happened in front of cameras to a U.S. citizen lawyer, just imagine how immigrants are treated by immigration officials when there are no cameras. Mm. Yeah, and so how? So, so you were when this incident happened. You were you were one of the eight stories for this documentary. So you had a camera crew with you, yeah, right? That's right. So I mean, it's crazy that this guy pushes you in front of a a camera crew. How how did your story land on this documentary? Did you did you get it? Or you like do you apply for that? Who, how did they select no. the eight people on that documentary? I, different people were selected different ways. As I'm now understanding the story, but at the time, we learned. So our story was featured in the Kansas City Star. When we took Kenya's case, um, we immediately got the press involved because we thought that the world needed to know that ICE was detaining pregnant women. So we got the Kansas City Star to write a story about her. And little did we know, as she was in jail and we had this story published, people in Los Angeles 
at a production company, uh, were scouring the internet looking for stories of people who were in Im- Im- imminent risk of deportation or undocumented for this documentary. And so I got an email from uh, this production crew, IPC Corporation, and they said, hi, we're, we're filming a documentary for that will be featured on Netflix. And we wa- we saw your client's story. We wanted to know if we could talk to them. And at first I was like, oh, spam. <laughs> this has got to be spam. And, um, and, and then I thought, well, what if it's not? They actually mentioned her name in the Kansas City Star. And so I was and I replied and I thought, well, let's just see what the client wants to do. This is my job as a lawyer is to give my clients their options and let them choose. So I called Luis. and I said, Luis, what do you think? Is this something you're interested in? And he said, I think that this story needs to be told. And I we will we will be willing to risk and sacrifice ourselves so that the world can see um, what immigrants are going through. And I said, OK. And he was interviewed by IPC Corporation, um, who was the production company that sold the the product mm-hmm. to Netflix. He was interviewed, and and they loved him because he's he's amazing, right? Luis is uh, just such a kind, good, yes. good. So you fall in love with him. You just fall in love you, with him. Yeah. They called him the heart of the documentary uh-huh. because he's just yeah. that's who he is, you know. And uh, so they loved him, and they decided that he was going to be one of the stories. Mm. And he became the story because Kenya was in jail, right? So they followed him from Texas. They yeah. they followed him and and Noah and just, uh, gosh, I just love that family so much. Yeah, yeah. So, so this assault happens, and then you're left out there. Um, help give people because this story is still has it's still ongoing. Sure is. Yeah. So so bring us bring us to uh, unfold some more of the story for us. So um, I, I don't know if I don't know what happened. I don't know why anyone would would do what they did. The ICE agents did, but they did um, lock the door. We were locked out. Megan and I were just in shock um, and we're standing at the door like, well, our clients are in there and we're here. What's happening? And so then the ICE agent came back out and told me, if you want to come in, come in. And I came I went in because I was like, yes, I want to be with my clients. What are you doing to them at this point? You, uh, We didn't even know if Kenya was in there. So I went in. Um, and I saw the most heart wrenching, um, I think moment of my life, which was the three of them, Kenya, Luis and little Noah hugging and crying and Luis kissing Kenya's huge belly at this point. She was like seven and a half, almost eight months pregnant. Um, and they were just, the three of them were just embracing and they were hugging and they were crying. And I walked into that and, um, and then the, there was a male and a female deportation office officer and the male agent told the female agent, okay, deport them now. And I said, wait a minute, their luggage is in my car. At least let me go get their luggage. And he said, no, deport them without their luggage. Mm. So um, the next thing I know, um, Kenya is trying to, is being told she needs to leave and is trying to rip Noah off of Luis and Noah's screaming. And he's like, no, I don't want to leave. I don't want, and he's trying to grab Luis by his shirt. He's trying to like grab him by his neck. Like he did not want to be separated from Luis. And imagine mm-hmm. this is a three-year-old who mm-hmm. had al- already just suffered the trauma of six weeks of separation from his mother that he had never been away from a day in his life before this point. And now he's being separated from the only father that's safe to him. So Kenya and uh, Noah are ultimately taken away and deported without any luggage. And Luis and I are left in uh, this room and we were locked in this room uh, by a deportation, this deportation agent who ended up calling the Federal Protective Service to have me arrested. And he lied and made up this whole huge story that I had tried to trespass on federal property. Um, 
And at this point, all the videos are going viral of what happened. And Federal Protective Service never arrived. So we just sat there waiting for me to be arrested. And I tried to call 911. And he took my phone and wouldn't let me call 911. And then I realized I'm bleeding and my foot's swelling up huge and he wouldn't give me medical treatment. So there's an ongoing lawsuit for all of these these things that uh, I think are crimes, but are at least torts. Um, so and in the meantime, unfortunately, Luis was actually detained and Luis was put into the immigration system when we were told that he was not going to be. So Luis is now currently in the deportation process. And my firm uh, continues to represent him, but there's not um, there's not a guarantee. There's not a guarantee of what's going to happen for him. Um, and we are just continuing to do the best we can to represent him and hope that Where we can find him. Where is he physically located right now? So now the whole family moved to Kansas City because they wanted to be by us. <laughs> so they and a, and a very good-willed family bought them a house after the documentary came out. Someone decided they were going to um, surprise. Uh, Luis and his family with a house. And as you saw in episode four, after Kenya and Noah were deported to Honduras, they actually came back to the United States because the same issue that happened when she originally fled happened again with Noah's father mm -hmm. and they were unsafe. And so nine months pregnant, Kenya rides on the top of a train called La Bestia uh, through Mexico with three and a half year old Noah on the top of a train to get back to the United States. Wow. And she shows us the video. Louise called me when she was at the border and I was like, what? So she, Where did she deliver her baby? Here. And we got to go see the baby oh, the wow. day after she was born. Wow. Yeah. So they have a beautiful little baby girl who's, who's chunky and two and a half, three years old now. So both of their cases are still pending. Yeah. Um, both Louise and Kenya. That's right. And they're at different stages in the process because of Kenya and Noah's prior removal order. So I would like to ask for prayer for that family. And um, it's something that, you know, we continue to fight for them to be able to stay. But mm -hmm. like most things in my profession, there's no guarantee because we're yeah. not the judge. Yeah. Wow. What an amazing story, huh? It really does shine light on the complexity of these issues, but also the humanity, uh, the human side of these stories, because you, if, if people would take time and watch this, they, their, their, their heart would, would move with compassion toward this. And, and these cases could be multiplied by that's right. The thousands and thousands, and that's thousands right. And thousands. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's go back to this thing in the Bible where it talks about, caring for the stranger, the gear, or where Jesus says, you know, when you do this to the least of these, you've done it to me. And he's mm -hmm. talking about the immigrant. So we've got people listening that would, I'm sure, consider themselves followers of Jesus. What can the average person sitting around Kansas City who's not an immigration lawyer do for the stranger, the immigrant? How, what are some practical things that people can do? You know, the first thing that I think is the most important thing is to make a friend. Make a friend with somebody who is from another country or who doesn't look like you or speak like you and just get to know their story. Um, as I have grown in this field, I've become more and more in awe of the clients that I serve. And what I also see is U.S. citizens coming into my office, bringing in their favorite worker, saying, hey, 
my guy, can you get my guy a visa? He's special. He, yeah. you know, he's great. I love him. He's my horse trainer. He's my whatever, you know, and, and I, I see these amazing U.S. citizens that, that come alongside and champion the cause of this person that they know. And if we all did that, I think there would be change. I think if we spoke on behalf of the people who don't have a voice literally because they cannot vote, um, the world would change and our country would change and these laws would change that need to change. But it also, it all starts with getting to know someone, getting to know their story and then having compassion for that story. And then beyond that, there are volunteer opportunities. So there are uh, organizations like, um, Jewish Vocational Services, El Centro, and my firm, Martinez Immigration Law, can always refer out to organizations that need volunteers mm-hmm. to help immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, there are free clinics and um, other ways to serve immigrants and even places like um, churches that have food pantries. There are so many of my clients that are going, especially during the pandemic, that went to the Vineyard Kansas City North Food Pantry mm-hmm. and other churches that um, that are serving immigrants. There are also a lot of great not-for-profits around Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some Christian not-for-profits, in fact. Yeah. So um, Mission Southside is a great one. So I I could certainly refer to organizations mm-hmm. depending. Many of them require Spanish language skills, mm-hmm. so it would depend on on the person's language skills to know exactly where to to plug them in. But Jewish Vocational Services always has a nice holiday yep. uh, refugee um, Christmas packing kind of a mm-hmm. kind of a ministry that people can do. And so JVS is one of my one of my favorite places to send volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so it was so fascinating to me. I, I had always been involved with um, serving the poor and food pantries all, all in the city. But then when we launched and we partnered with harvesters and launched um the one at Vineyard, mm-hmm. you know, we're so far north. We're almost to Smithville. Yeah. And I, I thought nobody's going to show up, you know, because you drive around in the suburbs and you really don't see the poor. Right. But um, but we started that years ago, years ago. And people just started showing up by the by the hundreds and then by the thousands. And so many of them only spoke Spanish. Right. So um, this this all of a sudden you realize and and then I started reading at, I don't know about ten years ago there they started doing on uh, a lot more demographic work on the suburbs in America and how the poor aren't just in the core anymore mm. they're all they're all scattered through the suburbs as well now too so it's like the hidden the hidden poor mm. because of the the service. Um, jobs that are out in the suburbs and all that kind of stuff and people that are working those many times under poverty and all that kind of stuff so um so yeah there there's a huge huge deal so the the church food pantries and we we had helped get these started in some of the hispanic churches in the core some of the african-american churches in the core we got them up and running with harvesters and that kind of thing really did become the grocery stores for people during the pandemic Absolutely. I mean, big time. Big time. Big like, time. They didn't get stimulus. They didn't yeah. get PPP. They didn't get unemployment. Right, right. They just suffered. Yeah. And uh, and the all of these food pantries just exploded with, you know, lines. and. But thank God they were there. Thank God they were there. Yeah. And that is, if even if you don't speak Spanish, go serve at, the, at a church food pantry mm-hmm. and you're going to be serving a lot of immigrants. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, 
maybe uh, what are what are some closing thoughts that you might have for folks just to yeah. just around this issue? Um, I think that there there's so much unknown about who immigrants are, and there's also I think a misnomer or a you know a fear that if there was some kind of a an update or immigration reform in the law that all of these people would vote Democrat. I think that that's a real, that's a myth that I, I would like to debunk. Actually, many of the clients that I serve, most of them are very religious, socially conservative people, either Catholic or evangelical, and are people who um, socially are very conservative. So I think for people, I want to just, I want to just make sure that this is crystal clear that an immigration reform would not necessarily mean that everybody would vote Democrat. In fact, I think if these, if this huge immigrant block had a chance to vote, there would be a lot of Republican uh, voters in this new immigration. And I think we saw that in the 2020 elections. It's not as easy as just saying Hispanics vote blue. We saw Florida, for example, and Venezuelans and Cubans were entirely, almost entirely voting red, right? So I want to make sure that people know that this is not a political issue. This is not, I'm, I'm not promoting um, a particular party here. I actually want to be really clear that many immigrants would likely vote Republican if they were given the chance to vote. So uh, I think this is something that if, if there are people out there that, that think I don't want to support um, some kind of an immigration reform because I'm afraid that it would be mm-hmm. just more Democratic voters, I don't think that would be the case. In fact, I think I think um, many of my clients are hardworking small business people. They immediately get their work cards. Think it's one of the best parts of my job is I help people get their work authorization. They get their work authorization. They get their social security numbers, and then they go start their own businesses and they pay taxes. So they're small business owners that are very. Um, many of them are just very family good people. And on that note, I would also like to debunk the myth that they are criminals or any other version of criminal. This is a group that statistically, um, the undocumented population in the United States has a much lower percentage of crime than the native-born U.S. citizens. So I just want to also throw that that out there, debunking a couple of myths. That's good. <clears throat> yeah, and, and in my mind, it was never, I, I didn't, I never approached it politically. Right. I always thought about it through this biblical lens of the stranger, immigrant, social justice, what the prophets called us to do in, in terms of social justice and that's what right. Jesus called us to do. So that's what it was always about for me. Me too. And it's, yeah. it's about human beings, you know, who are yeah. made in the image of God or people of dignity and worth. And we, we have an opportunity to show God's love in in some wonderful ways. And yes. so, yeah, well, thank you so much for your work. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you or follow you, um, how would they do that? Where yeah, would- so my firm would be the best way to do that, Martinez Immigration Law. And we have a wonderful social media team that helps us keep up our Instagram and Facebook, mostly Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, and then we also are constantly posting immigration law updates because they happen daily. So if people are interested in just knowing what's happening with immigration law, we're constantly posting. All right. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures and we will see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com and make a one-time donation or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special 
bonus content. Thanks so much.